let me add my welcome to the one I hope you just received. If I hadn't had the chance to meet you, my name is Ben, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and it is my privilege to be able to preach this morning as we turn our attention to God's Word. So I want to begin this morning with a question. What do you do when life is unfair and everything is out of control? What I think we're going to learn this morning is that God powerfully responds to the cries of the powerless. And so if today you enter the church and you are feeling helpless before the bullies and institutions that overpower and harass you, you are in a good place because the Lord hears your cry. And if you are in a position of authority this morning, this message might humble you and encourage you to use your power to lift other people up. Today we begin a series in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to be here for a while, so you better buckle up and settle in. Um, 1 Samuel in the Hebrew Bible follows the book of Judges. And the judges starts with the nation of Israel in a very bad place. And it ends with the nation of Israel in a much worse place. It describes this downward spiral of a nation. This cycle where the people get into trouble always of their own making. And the nation cries out to God. And God mercifully provides a redeemer to help them get out of their trouble. Uh, But the redeemers continue to make choices that God wouldn't want. And the trouble that the nation makes gets worse and worse and worse until you get to the end of the book of Judges. And it's really the low point of the Old Testament. So dark. There's no moral leadership. All of the priests are corrupt. There's no social or political leadership. In the tribes of Israel, there's infighting, division, murder. It says at the end of the book of Judges, over and over again, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then four times it says, and there was no king in Israel. 1 Samuel is about God meeting that need for godly leadership by raising up faithful leaders after his own heart. And so we're going to read in Samuel about David, of course, and Samuel, but also about Hannah and Jonathan and Abigail And people who didn't hold an office or have an official title, but whose faith and whose hearts allowed them to influence others and ultimately change the course of a nation. And one of the most beautiful things about 
1 Samuel is where it begins. With Hannah. With one woman and her broken heart, her many tears, and her tremendous faith. Hannah would have been a person in her culture who would have been either overlooked or looked down upon. But those are just the type of people that the Lord uses to turn the world upside down. And we're going to see that the Lord saw in Hannah a heart that was a powder keg of faith and hope. And it was about to go off. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we look at your word today, would you be with us? Thank you that you start this great salvation story with Hannah. Uh, As we turn our attention to her and to her story, would you teach us by your spirit? We give you so much thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're just going to work through the passage verse by verse. If you have your Bible, uh, it would be great to have it open to 1 Samuel. But let's just start in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu. I'm trying to make this exciting because it's a whole bunch of names. The son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. Let's stop there. Immediately, we are introduced to a man with a really long, boring genealogy. A genealogy in the Old Testament is like someone's resume. And so if you've read through the Old Testament, if you're familiar with it, this sounds like the introduction to somebody important, either a prophet, a priest, or a king. And remember, we're looking for a king. So here's a man with a genealogy, with a whole bunch of weird-sounding Hebrew names. It looks like we found our man. So we begin the story with this expectation that this is going to be the book about King Elkanah. But that's not what we get. We don't even hear from this guy after this chapter, again, in the whole book. It's almost as if the author already is telling us to expect a story where God is going to subvert our expectations for what a hero looks like. Because who, look who takes the spotlight. It's his wife, Hannah. Verse 2. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts, At Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, we'll learn more about those guys later, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her 
though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as they went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Let's stop there. Now, Hannah is the hero hero of our story, but we find that her story begins in a place of very real and personal pain. There's three ways that this is highlighted for us in the text. First, we learn that Hannah could not have children. And this is a source of pain for many in this room, I would imagine. And it was a source of pain for Hannah. Uh, But in that culture, the pain would have been uh, even more, if we can imagine it, than folks in that situation in our culture. This was an agrarian society. And so children not only meant personal fulfillment, it meant prosperity, because the more children you had, the more hands you had to do the work, to yield the crops, to get the income. So children meant prosperity and stability. Children also meant security, because they were the ancient world's 401k program. Uh, They didn't have retirement plans They had kids, and the more kids a couple had, the more likely it was that that couple could be taken care of, and it puts the the command to honor one's father and mother in perspective. Kids, this wasn't just about obeying your parents when they told you to go to bed, though you should do that. It was about creating a culture that cared for the elderly and the aged and the infirm. Thirdly, kids weren't just important for your family, they were important for the nation. They were important for the survival of the nation. The economy and the military was completely dependent upon a large number of children being born. So bearing children was a life or death issue for the nation as a whole. And so one's significance in the community would rise and fall with their ability to have a child. Not just personal fulfillment, but prosperity, someone's security, someone's significance. Hannah's infertility would have been a terrible burden to her. And to make matters even worse, she had a rival, a bully who was constantly harassing her. And so in verse 2, we're told that Hannah is Elkanah's first wife. And her name kind of gives that away. Hannah means favored. Can you say favored? Favored. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, she, and she was loved by Elkanah, it says, the wife that Elkanah had chosen, but she was unable to have children. And so Elkanah, probably a man of means, did what a lot of guys did back then. Because children were so important, he took on a second wife who could have kids for the family. 
And that's Panina. And guess what Panina's name means? Fruitful. Can you say fruitful? (laughs) So you have favored, but she didn't feel favored. And you had fruitful, but she didn't feel favored. Now, the Bible never approves or endorses polygamy. And it goes out of its way to show how families who chose this, their lives were miserable. And that was certainly the case here with Panina and Hannah. Hannah wants what Panina has. And Panina wants what Hannah has, Elkanah's love. Think about the tension that was there. They do different things with their pain. Hannah, as we will see, goes to the Lord. But what does Peninnah do? She turns it outward. She's going to make other people feel pain. And Peninnah loves to make Hannah's life miserable. And out of her loneliness and her bitterness, she finds great delight in hurting Hannah. And isn't it just so true that often someone's meanness is rooted in their painful story? It's important for us to remember But she mocks and provokes and irritates Hannah out of her pain and struggle. And it just adds to Hannah's pain. So she wasn't able to have children. There was this rival. And then finally, on the top of all that, the person who was supposed to provide some measure of leadership in the house. This was a patriarchal culture. So we're talking about Elkanah here. Wasn't making things better. He wasn't mediating this disagreement He was making things worse through his obvious favoritism of Hannah and through his clueless insensitivity. So first we have his favoritism. In verse 5, we're told that as a, a sign of his affection, Elkanah would give Hannah a double portion of food. Admittedly, an odd way to show affection. You can imagine old man Elkanah just... uh taking up a scoop of mashed potatoes and putting a double portion on Hannah's plate with a wink and a smile. Feel free to swoon, ladies. Elkanah's a real catch. Uh, But what he did, he didn't make Hannah feel better. It accentuated her loss, and it fueled Peninnah's pain. And secondly, you have his response to her pain in verse 8. Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Guys, add this to the list of things you do not say when your wife is in pain. Like, honey, you got me? What's the, what's the holdup? Why are you sad? Um, like Elkanah's like a lot of guys. He couldn't fix it, and he couldn't enter into the space of pain. And so he pretends it's not there. He's, he tries to fill the gap himself, and it doesn't work. So can't have children, harassed by a rival, husband making it worse. That is the painful backdrop of our story. And I want us to just take a moment before we go on to place ourselves in that story. 
And for some of us, that will not be hard at all. There is a unique way in which people who have wrestled with infertility wrestle and identify with this story. Uh, My wife Katie and I, for the first eight years of our marriage, were unable to have children. And we know the pain and burden of that, the stress it put on our relationship, the pain we carried in our heart. The Lord did bless us. We were able to have uh, our son Abel first, and then we had a miscarriage in between, and we named the daughter we lost Hannah, uh, partly because this story was so meaningful to us. We'd come to it at times, and it'd be very hopeful because we'd feel seen. We'd come to it at other times, and it'd be so triggering to us because Hannah prayed, and did we not have enough faith? Is that why? We weren't having a child. And for Katie and I, it was important for us to to know where Hannah's story ended and our story began. In other ways, there's, there's ways in which Hannah's story is not your story. This is the Hannah story. In other words, this isn't meant to give us a theology of infertility or how you get children. There's a way you have to know where a biblical character's story ends. And God's doing unique things in Hannah's life. As he's doing unique things in yours. As he was doing unique things in Katie and mine. There's a real way in which Hannah's story is not your story. And there's another sense in which Hannah's story is all of our stories. Because we all know painful longing. Seasons of loss and grief. We all know what it's like to be bullied and hurt and to have rivals. We have all experienced confusion about what God is up to in our lives because of a particular diagnosis or set of closed doors or set of painful circumstances or losses. We all know what it's like to be told we're the favored of God. And then you look at the outcome of our life, and the gap in between is confusion and hurt and sorrow. We don't always feel favored, do we? So in some ways, it's all of our stories. But to understand 1 Samuel, you need to know that there is a very particular way in which Israel as a nation would have identified with Hannah's story. Because they were the favored chosen ones of God. And yet, they looked at their life and it was barren. Their country, their nation wasn't bearing the fruit of justice and peace and love that it was meant to. They desired and were promised prosperity and stability and security. And it was emptiness. And they would have known what it was like to be harassed by rivals, the bullies, the surrounding nations that are so often at the heart of the storylines of both Judges and 1 Samuel. And they knew what it was like to have leadership that was making things worse. We learn that the, the, Jerusalem wasn't the central place of worship at this time. It was Shiloh. And we're going to learn that things were so bad at Shiloh. Shiloh was not a good place 
to go and worship because the priests were so corrupt. We talk, it, it mentions Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. These were bad dudes. People would be podcasting about these guys, and we would be listening to the podcasts um, in that day. And so Israel would read Hannah's story, and they would say, that's me. That's us. Hannah's story was Israel's story in miniature. And through Hannah, God is going to provide for both Hannah and the nation all at once. Let's see how this works. Verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. But Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Let's stop there. So this is a turning point in the story. And notice that it says, Hannah arose. Now in a Hebrew narrative, whenever you're given a detail, it's never there just for, you know, why would it tell us that Hannah arose? That she stood up? Of course you stand, stand up after you eat. No, it's telling us that she was about to take decisive action. She stood up. She put her foot down. She was ready for a change. But did you notice where, what Eli was doing in the very next verse? Let me read it to you. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. But Eli the priest was sitting on the seat of the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. So Hannah standing up is contrasted with Eli, the priest, who is supposed to be the one leading. And he's passive, sitting. He's the one supposed to be exercising authority, making the sacrifices at the temple, pouring out his heart on behalf of a nation that lies in ruins. But it's Hannah that's going to offer the sacrifice, that's going to cause the change that shifts the course of a nation forever. And what is the sacrifice that she offers? An honest prayer before God. A broken heart and an honest prayer before God. And it is her prayer that I want us to focus on, not only because it gives us a model of prayer that's beautiful, but whenever someone prays, you get a sense of who they think God is. Prayer is a window into how someone envisions the Lord. And we get a window into God's heart through Hannah's praying that is really, really wonderful. First thing we see is that Hannah believed that God could handle her mess. Verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. What does it sound like for a person to pray to the Lord when they are weeping bitterly? What would it look like for someone to pray to the Lord who is weeping this bitterly? This is ugly praying. This is honest praying. 
And throughout the passage, we're going to, these are the, these are, this is the language that's used to describe her prayer. It was in deep anguish, bitter weeping, in affliction. She was troubled in spirit. She prayed with great anxiety and vexation. And this is a great prayer. If you are praying in great anxiety and vexation, do you count yourself as praying a great prayer? I'm just saying there is a brand of spirituality that says that true prayer should be settled, quiet, contemplative. And the implication is the more calm you are or composed you are, the better your prayer is. But that's not what happens with Hannah. Hannah's prayer arises from pain, anxiety, vexation, and grief. And so if you are experiencing pain and anxiety and vexation and grief, then you are in a good place to pray well. Um, Perhaps because of how anxious you feel, you find that you can't concentrate in prayer. That's what happens when you're anxious and fearful. But apparently, that's the kind of condition that produces good praying. All that to say, prayer is not a technique that you have to master. It is pouring out your soul before the Lord. And the Lord can handle it. The Lord wants the honest you He welcomes broken hearts. He says, I'm your God, not because you put on a happy face every morning, not because you do everything just right, not because you speak reverently to me. I'm your God because I love you, because I'm a God of grace, and I am a big boy. And in our relationship, there is nothing out of bounds. Everything in your life properly belongs to this conversation of the heart I want to have with you. And so even before Christ, look at Hannah boldly going before the throne of grace. She believed that God could handle her mess. Secondly, she believed that God was powerful enough to change her circumstances Uh, Verse 11, it says that she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. Literally, that language is God of the armies of heaven or God Almighty. And that language is used 300 times in the Old Testament to describe God. This is the first time that it's used in the Old Testament by Hannah. And she's basically saying, God, you have in your arsenal every force, cosmic, earthly, heavenly, it's all under your sovereign control. You are powerful. But then look at what she does with it. Verse 11, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. 
She believed that God was big enough to change her circumstances, but loving enough to care about them. She says, remember me, cosmic ruler, sovereign over every and all power. Remember me. She's assuming that the broken heart of an, a relatively obscure woman from the hill country of Ephraim matters to him. Um, and she's meditating on that. Lord Almighty, who cares for the plight of a rural, barren farm woman who everyone else says is a failure. And in her prayer, she reveals the sort of God who cares for the small and the broken and the frail people. She prayed with a belief that God could powerfully change her circumstances and was tender enough to care about them. And then she prayed with a belief that God could powerfully use her in the world. Listen to her vow, uh, starting again in verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall ever touch his head. So here she commits the son that she doesn't yet have to the Lord's service. And what she commits him to is to be a Nazarite. She vows that his son will take a Nazarite vow. And here's a little bit of the background to that. In the Old Testament, only priests could serve in the temple. And the priests came from a certain family, the the Levites. And while they were serving in the temple, they had to live by certain a certain holiness code. They couldn't touch dead bodies. They had to wear their hair in a certain way. They couldn't drink alcohol. What a Nazarite would do, it would be someone outside of the Levitical family who would want to serve God in a special way. Maybe at the temple for a certain amount of time. Maybe they had another, another sacred task. And what they would do is they would make a vow before the Lord is, I think this is such a sacred moment in my life. I'm going to live as if I were a priest for a time while I do this bit of service, either in the temple or on the outside. And so this was someone who was a voluntary priest in the world. But in Samuel's case, this was going to be not a temporary thing, but a lifetime commitment to be a voluntary Levite. Thanks, Mom. I didn't sign up for that. Now think of what that would have meant for Hannah. It would have meant that her son wouldn't have really been a benefit to her at all. She renounces in this move what would have been valuable to her about having a son. The son wasn't going to grow up into her house, wasn't going to be able to be an emotional support for her, wasn't going to take care of her in, in old age. She was saying with this move, Lord, your kingdom matters to me more than my personal circumstances. And I want to be a co-conspirator with you in your kingdom work. And I know the land needs some new priests because the ones we got are ridiculous. Verse 12. 
As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the Lord of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. So this is who's in charge of the temple. This is the representative priest. And notice that he sees a woman praying an honest, godly prayer. And it's been so long since he's seen that in Shiloh, he thinks she's drunk. What a lack of spiritual discernment. And so Hannah says, I'm not drunk. This is what prayer looks like. (laughs) And he says, oh, probably with a little bit of embarrassment, okay, uh, go. He doesn't know what she's prayed for. It's been quiet. So he said, may the Lord answer your prayer. What he doesn't know is that ironically he just signed his death warrant because she was praying that the son that she would have would take his place. It's a beautiful bit of biblical irony. So, Man, this is amazing. When we ask God, are we willing to participate with him? Hannah was. She saw the need in the world. She wasn't just about her. She was about the kingdom. It's an amazing thing. So she believes that God is able to handle our mess, that he's present to our cries, that he's powerful enough to help, that he's loving enough to care, that he wants to use us in his plans, and finally, that he's good enough to trust. Look at verse 17. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And Hannah said, let your servant find favor in your eyes, which is actually a pun on her name because her name means favor. So in the Hebrew, it's let your servant find Hannah in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Something amazing happens here. So She eats, and her face is no longer downcast. Hannah doesn't know how God will answer her prayer, and yet her heart is changed. How we expect the story to go is Hannah prays, Hannah gets pregnant, Hannah is joyful. But in the story, something different happens. Hannah prays, Hannah is joyful. What happened? Hannah has found rest in just bringing her requests before a God that she can trust. Her request is now with the Lord. And she knows the peace that has been poured out into her heart by the Holy Spirit who cares for his people. 
Faith-filled Hannah has found a source of joy and security that's greater than the hope of sons. A God who cares about her, and who is with her, and has a plan for her, whether she understands it or not. Let's close this thing out. Verses 19 and 20. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. That means exactly what you think it means. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So this is a very typical Hebrew narrative. There's so much drama and pain and detail leading up to this point. And then when the child's born, we get so few details. They went home, they had relations, they had a kid, and we're on with the thing. And it's written like that on purpose. It's actually a literary technique. It's telling us that the kid isn't the the point of the story in this part of the story. We need to go to where all the detail was. The spotlight is on Hannah's prayer, Hannah's heart of faith. The point of the story is Samuel's name. Names are often significant. And uh, Hannah names the child and explains it's because I have asked for him. And the word asks sounds somewhat like the Hebrew word for Samuel. Samuel's name reflects the point. She had the courage and faith to ask. Even when things seemed impossible, she asked. At that point in her life, she knew she needed a miracle. And there was only one place to turn. And against a backdrop of such darkness and despair, she knew knew her hope was in the one true God. And even though her story made no sense to her, there was nowhere else that she could turn. So she poured out her heart before God. And God provided joy before the child and joy when the child was born. God provided in a wonderful way that would deal with both Israel and Hannah's crisis because she would have a child. And as we're going to see, that child is not only going to reverse her situation, but Samuel is going to take the place of the despicable and corrupt priests. He is going to be the one who topples Eli and who is ultimately the forerunner to a long-awaited king. David, how should we respond? Well, let's first just let Hannah be our teacher and allow her to show us how to pray for God's kingdom to come, especially when we're feeling powerless amidst the powers that be. She had the courage and faith to ask, and God answers our prayers. He looked upon his servant's misery. And though he may not always answer exactly the way we want, um, he is good enough to trust. He can handle our mess. We are to consider his character and plunge 
our pain at his feet into the soil of God's love. So much of this story asks us, where do you go with your pain? Are you like Elkanah? Do you just pretend it's not painful and that everything's okay? Are you like Panina and everyone around you is miserable because you're miserable? And you find your, you nurse your pain. It's, you've become identified with your pain. Or are you like Hannah? Who takes the pain and the mystery of the moment and plunges it into the character of a God who is good and trustworthy and wise and yes, mysterious at times, but there. If 1 Samuel teaches us anything, it says it starts with prayer. The change you want starts with prayer. The change we want in this world starts with prayer. And we have even more reason to pray because of how this story points us to Jesus. Hannah's story reminds us of another woman who longed to have a baby, whose child was going to point out the hypocrisy of a group of religious leaders. And here I'm not talking about Mary, I'm talking about Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And Elizabeth's story is written to mirror Hannah's story. Think about Elizabeth, a woman who wished to have a child, and God answered her prayers miraculously. And that child was John the Baptist who would expose the hypocrisy of Israel's leaders at the time, not Eli, but the Pharisees, and who in the River Jordan would anoint a man who would shift not the course of a nation, but the course of the world. The man Jesus, who was the world's true king and who would live his life serving people like Hannah, lifting them up. The Hannahs of the world, the broken, the hurting, and the suffering. And the one who would ultimately go to a cross to provide our ultimate salvation from the things that haunt us. And then it's hard not to think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just ugly praying before the Father in anxiety and vexation. But unlike Hannah, his prayer wasn't answered by the Father. And his prayer wasn't, he was, he was made to drink the cup and go to the cross so that we would know what, in whatever mysterious or painful situation we're in, we have all the more reason to trust in the character of our God. And so run to Him. Go to Him. Boldly approach the throne of grace. He's waiting for you. Let me pray. Jesus, thank You so much for 1 Samuel. It is a rich treasure trove of spiritual insight. Um, I pray that while we travel through this story together, that your spirit would be so present with us. Um, Thank you for Hannah. And I know that in the last few weeks of studying this text, I've just been convicted. If someone were to look into my prayers, what kind of God would they see on the other end of the line? 
by the way I'm praying. And I lack the freedom and faith of this precious woman. Uh, But you still believe and trust in me as you do in the men and women here. And you are giving us an opportunity to come to you with our whole hearts, uninhibited. You open your arms to us in Jesus and say, come, with all of your questions and confusion, your hurt, your pain, and your sorrow, you can trust me. I'm a God who is powerful enough to change your circumstances. I'm loving enough to care. I want to use you in my plans, and I'm good enough to trust. Help us to start there, Lord. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.